I'm Charles Legg, compiler of the Daily Mail's long-running Answers to Correspondence page. Here we answer all the weird and wonderful questions sent in by our readers. In this podcast, I'm going to answer your questions on everything from entertainment to history, from science to sport, from the sensible to the surreal, all with the help of the Daily Mail's top experts. Now, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify, and leave us a review. Today, I'd like to welcome Tom Parker-Bowles, food critic for the Mail on Sunday, Mail Plus, and author of many fine culinary books, including The Year of Eating Dangerously, and uh, Full English, A Journey Through the British and Their Food. So, Tom, a bit of a trite question. Where did your love of cooking come from? Well, Charles, greed, really. I wish I could say some high-blown romantic notion of wanting to uh, use my art to please and people but no just greedy I no, love I, I'm exactly the same <laughs> <laughs> anyway let's crack on with the questions so one of our readers asked if evolution depends on the survival of the fittest why do we seem to be genetically programmed to like unhealthy foods <laughs> I mean that's a big question dear reader big big question up there with does God exist do you know what? I, I'm, as, as you well know, I'm, I'm an eater, not a scientist, and, and there are plenty of scientific uh, answers to this, very serious ones. But really, I think the fact is, maybe not predisposed, but if you think the two things that for me taste nice, the three things are salt, fat, and sugar. Now, all these things in the right amounts, and sometimes in the case of fat, the right kinds, they're not trans fats and uh, those ghastly ones in margarine, they taste good. Fat is flavour. You think of fillet steak. Fillet steak um, is more expensive. It's a lot more tender. It's done no work sitting under the backbone um, all its life. But it has less flavour because it's done less work and it has less fat. You think of the really fatty cuts, the breasts of lambs, the shin of beef, you slow cook them. But all that fat means flavour. So you cut the fat off and the flavour goes. Sugar, obviously, tastes good. Our children love it. We love it. Even occasionally you get a sugar craving, not too much. And salt, again, too much of it's not supposed to be good for our blood pressure and many other things but you watch how chefs cook they, they put it on by the fistful and that's why restaurant food often tastes very different to home cooked food because they're using salt as an industrial additive in, in the best possible way um not hidden away like in ready meals but you know salt is is you know one of our our, our, our five basic tastes and it's really very good indeed as back to fat so whether or not we're genetically disposed towards eating junk. And I don't, I don't think that it is junk, salt and sugar and, and sweet things. They can be very proper and lovely. But yes, they taste nice. <laughs> I think it, that's it's the, the combinations, isn't it? I mean, there's the deadly combination of sort of half fat, half sugar, isn't it? The, the milk chocolate effect. Yeah, so, very much. I mean, it tastes and it's very clever of nature and, and, or, or whatever it is. Na- yeah, nature to make things taste good and taste sweet. You know, we like honey because it tastes sweet and uh, sugar, too much sugar is a huge problem. But, but like everything else, it's balance. Um, I think we need a bit of balance. We're allowed to eat things that taste good occasionally. Or balance in life. But I guess there might be a genetic element in that our hunter-gatherer uh, uh, ancestors would have to, the, they didn't have ready meals. They didn't have supermarkets <laughs> to hand. So they would have to, if they found honey, they ate it immediately, didn't they, for, for storage purposes? 
Of course, and also salt, we forget, in the days of pre-electricity and pre-industrial uh, uh, food uh, um, preserving, it, 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 this was, salt was a great preservative of food. Um, if you killed your deer or whacked your mammoth or whatever it was over the head with a stick, the salt they found out, and, and you know, if you salt something, it keeps away food poisoning, sort of bugs, really, um, and it keep, makes food last longer. So I suppose, you know, salt, aside from it being essential for us to live, we need salt to live. Yeah, it was an essential um, ingredient in preserving and keeping us alive through long winters. Well, a lot of the Roman roads were built to, to do just that, transport salt, the Via Salarium, which is supposedly where the word salary comes from. Of course, yes. I mean, salt is something that is rather vilified at the moment, but it's something that, as I said, without which we, we cannot uh, physically live, uh, although not too much of it. And it's, you know, it's one of the, one of the most used ingredients in every culture on earth. Um, good stuff, salt. <laughs> so moderation is the key. In moderation, um, most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> Shall we move on then? Let's go, go for sparrows. Yes. How popular was sparrow pie during World War Two? Well, you know, what I love about, you know, when, when these questions are done, you do all this wonderful research and look into it. But, you know, during rationing, which went on, as we well know, quite a while after the war, um, especially during the city, there wasn't much to eat. So you, you, you ate whatever you could come across. Now, sparrows, like dormice in Roman times, were a great delicacy. And you still find in France, not quite sparrows, but small birds, autolong, uh, which are illegal, supposedly illegal to eat. And in Lebanon, um, and you eat them whole and you cover your face with a napkin because they're drowned in, they're fat in the dark room, they're br drowned in brandy. Um, not very nice at all. And I haven't eaten one, but you would, you'd cover your face with a napkin. Some would say to cover your face from God, you see, because you were, you were <laughs> sinning in this, in this uh, very extravagant way. But Sparrows were eating a huge amount. Same with rooks as well. Rook pie. I remember Hugh Funny Whittestall doing a rook pie uh, oh, wow. recipe a while back. Can climb up into the trees, you know, in, in, in the sort of end of winter, beginning of spring, when the birds were, were nesting, and you'd have rook pie, and apparently it's very good. And, and sparrows, I, would, I mean, it's not in Lord Wharton's wartime cookery book, I can tell you that much for free, along with things like Wilson pie and all, all those sort of horrible uh, but necessary fake things. But I'm certain that many, many things we eat, and people will eat anything in times of, of severe um, hardship and hunger, um, and including um, each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think during the sort of pre-war era, they were extremely popular, and you'd, you'd actually be eating uh, a, a sort of 100 sparrows per pie. Um, wow. there, there's a recipe from 1769 from one Elizabeth Raffold, the experienced English housekeeper. And she has mixed half a pint of good milk with three eggs, a little salt, and as much flour as will make a thick batter. Put a lump of butter rolled in pepper and salt in every sparrow, mix them in the batter and tie them in cloth, boil them for one half an hour. And it says use at least five dozen sparrows. Good God. That's <laughs> a pudding. That's a pudding more than a pie though, isn't it? But, I guess well, it is. Yeah, and supposedly the Rose Inn at Pelden near Colchester in Essex uh, had a hundred sparrow pal that they served up until 1967. Wow, I mean, it'd be interesting to know what they tasted like. Not that I would, I would uh, support the killing of small songbirds. That's what cats do pretty effectively. Uh, but, but it was, you know, in the, in the times when they were plentiful 
and we didn't have such squeamish attitudes to eating all sorts of things. Why not? You know, it was chickens in those days were a luxury and so was salmon. Look what's happened to those two commodities. I, I think the problem with the sheer number they were getting through the late 19th century, because <laughs> they actually, um, in, the, in the Protection of Birds Act, which I think was 1954, they actually pretty much banned the eating of sparrows. You have to get a special dispensation to eat them. Wow. <laughs> That's but the real the real delicacy um in Germany was the lark though. Oh yeah, it, lark pie, yeah. Lark pie, which I don't suppose you've tried either, Tom. I haven't. I've 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 eaten a few I mean in Beirut, outside Beirut, I definitely had a few small birds which you ate whole, which were roasted. They taste like the bottom of when you roast a chicken, that delicious sort of uh, crunchy bit, of the, the umami bit at the bottom, it, they tasted rather like that. They weren't at all bad. They might have been local songbirds. They might have been singing quite happily in the trees but hours before. But you, it was quite an odd thing that you ate the whole thing. They were very small, like, I suppose, like a, a sparrow or whatever, but you, they crunch. You know, you ate the whole thing. I hope they weren't endangered. And, and obviously, for the record, they weren't. <laughs> but, 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 but yes, I, I you know... I'd say we've got a problem with songbirds at the moment. They're, many, many songbirds are dropping in numbers for many different reasons. But um, I have no problem with eating whatever you want to eat, as long as... Uh, it's it, sustainability it's like, is the key, isn't it? Sustainability, and it's, and it's had a good life. It's not factory farmed or produced or intensively farmed. I think, you know, why not? No, because they, they actually had the same problem in Germany, because they were, they were eating 400,000 larks uh, a year at one stage. So King Albert of Saxony decided it had to, they had to be banned and led a campaign to ban the eating of larks, which I think is still, still banned over well, there. Still, well, that's, obviously that, that makes sense. But um, again, if someone offered me one, you know, down a, down a back alley, not, not, during <laughs> these, not, not during these lockdown times, but no. you know, I, if I knew where it came from, I might try it. What would be the best type of food to store up in preparation for a global catastrophe? A timely question. Very timely. And in terms of you've seen what people are panic buying, people are filling their freezers with things like mints, chicken thighs. This is the fresh stuff, pizzas and all the rest of it. But really what, you know, you saw there was a run on when, when lockdown started. It was flour. It was yeast. Uh, a lot of tin chickpeas, kidney beans, all those sort of um, the pulses with, with lots of protein and, and, and goodness in them. For me, I would definitely have some form of tinned anchovies, sardines, instant, you know, oily fish, lots of omega-3s in it. Um, for me, anchovies, some good quality tinned or bottled anchovies, you can add them to roast lamb, you can add them to salads. They add very, very subtle secret depth to stews and to sauces. Um, so any kind of... Um, fish tinned i'd love and they last you know forever um and baked beans always baked beans are very very important you know meal in a can yeah <laughs> i think that you know you're you, people are rude about canned food and 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 um and frozen food and we realize how important it is my lard is always full of uh of, of tin stuff there's you know mainly beans and um different kinds of beans but there's, there's, there's a great food writer of the mid-last century called Ambrose Heath, and he wrote a book called Open Sesame, sort of 200 ways with a can. Uh, Jack, um, Jack Munro, fantastic writer uh, and cook. At the moment, she's done a tin can cookbook, um, which is very apt for these times. But don't fear the can. There's all sorts of wonderful things. When you go to Portugal, they have whole shops dedicated to every manner of fish and crustacean and all, all in cans. Um, beautiful packaging as well. I could quite happily live off, off all sorts of tin food for, for quite a while, to be honest. 
condensed I'm the milk. same. Tins and jars, roll mop herrings. Uh, oh, the classic. Yeah, and they last well, don't they? They do. They last well. They upset my family, but that doesn't matter too much. Um, but of course, over in the States, where the, there's a whole um, culture of building nuclear bunkers, and you have specialist food companies, uh, such as Mountain House, where they freeze-dry these packs. A bit like army rations, I suppose. Yeah. So that'd be your, your other option. That would be. And you see these crazy survivalists who hole up in the, in, in the wilds of Montana with their 14,000 machine guns and pistols <laughs> and all the rest of it, waiting for Armageddon to appear. Um, but they, will, they are quite well-stocked. I mean, in America, I used to work on a show, we used to get strange canned tin things in. They do whole roast chickens in tins. Oh, wow. um, they're not very nice. How are they preserved? In brine or something? In brine, exactly. They're cooked <laughs> and then put in some sort of nefarious brine. Uh, they don't, they taste a bit, what do you imagine what they taste like? Not particularly nice, but yes, you could go the whole hog, and I'm sure there are survivalist websites uh, that you go to and find all sorts of chilies and corned beef hash and, 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 and meatloafs. Uh, that that you could that you could survive on, but it, but again, there's certain things that like I mean, things like honey. Honey has no sell by date. There's a whole thing of the difference in the supermarkets between the sell by date and the use by date. Uh, but obviously, with fresh meat and fish, it's very important that you don't eat it when it's off. Well, they found edible honey in the in the pharaohs' tombs, didn't they? Exactly, because the, sh- the sugar content's so high that bacteria can't survive in it. I understand. Exactly, and and it's the same with a, with a lot of tin food as well. There's always people opening tins from 100 years ago and pronouncing them delicious. Um, I don't think you need to go that far, uh, but but yes, I mean, p- put your faith in, in 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 canned food. I mean, fresh is wonderful, but as we found, you know, occasionally, you know, tin ravioli, uh, baked beans, all that sort of stuff. I love that. Yeah, the the baked beans are the the sort of high point of canned food, aren't they? <laughs> <Yes>. Unbeatable. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to our final question, which is an interesting one, actually. You might, you might have an opinion. You might have eaten some of these. So what is considered to be the most complex dish in the world to create? Well, you know, you can go back. Wherever there were royals and money, there were always chefs willing to uh, show off and, and do all manner of wonderful things, whether it's Carême or Escoffier, all those sort of great French chefs. But really, and, and I know that you're, you're, you're you know, about to tell me some amazing historical examples, but just for the time being, some of the chefs, the likes of Hester Blumenthal and Ferran Adria at El Bulli, um, René Rezepi at Noma, those sort of guys, men and women, who are cooking that avant-garde food, you know, the, the spherified olives, the, um, the sounds of the sea, Heston's dish, they're... They are hugely complex dishes that you need all manner of scientific uh, equipment from packer jets to drying machines to to uh, water baths. I mean, you know, you look at sort of Heston's laboratories and they look as much like a scientist's laboratory as, as food. These are incredibly uh, complex dishes that occasionally they sell at-home kits. I remember Fran Adria had an at-home kit to make your own spherified olive, which is, you know, basically olive oil in a skin that looks like an olive um it's it seems a lot of work to go to when you could just eat an olive but this wasn't the point uh so yes some of these dishes i remember going to el bulli which was in uh, girona above girona in spain 10 years ago with about four of us 45 courses of which each one must have taken three people at least a day to do i mean this was the very pinnacle of modernist eating i suppose um 
they called it molecular gastronomy, but but they didn't like that term. So yes, cooking can be very simple and it can be very, very complicated. But I like the examples that we talked about earlier, which was about some of the, the, the great chefs to the great kings and queens in these sort of banquets. There was one example that, I, that, 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 that you told me about. What was that? There was, a fan, there was one particular... Yeah, so, so I mean, there was a poncho in medieval times for stuffing one thing within within another. A bird yeah. and another. So, so the famous... Um, the famous example is the revolting-sounded turducken, which yeah. is a, a whole turkey stuffed with duck, stuffed with chicken. Uh, but I understand you can go even smaller. Maybe you get your sparrows or your larks in there too. Oh, you can go put. right down to you can go, you know, from, you can go through pheasant, partridge, uh, grouse, snipe, and you can move right into sort of quail or something. You know, um, these these were. The, the Romans and the medieval kings, this was all eating for show, to show how rich you were, show how powerful you were. So, of course, medieval, the Tudors would love having lots of spices in there because it would show that they were rich and spices. Pepper was very expensive, cardamom, mace, nutmeg. Um, you know, this was all about culinary showing off, really. Um, and there were some wonderful dishes in the court, the Neapolitan court, actually, which the king of Naples, you know how Naples was split into various kingdoms before it was unified. Um, Italy was... And, you know, there'd be some, there'd be some all sorts of, you know, timbales are stuffed, you know, sort of macaroni with truffles and ham and God knows what else, sort of 50, 60, 70 ingredients. It was all about lavish, extravagant showing off, wasn't it? Absolutely. But then we could also hone it back and some of the simplest dishes are the hardest to get right, I would say. You know, the beef wellingtons, the, the clear consommes, you know, the, the oh. pinnacle of sort of French cooking. The, the clear consommes, you know, I love making stock from leftover bones when it's always cloudy. And occasionally I try and get creative and not creative, follow a serious chef and spent hours with mints and, and, and eggshells making a raft to suck up all the impurities to make my, my, my stock into consomme and very clear. It, it's extremely hard work and doesn't always work. Rarely works. Have you got any yeah. tips on the con- consomme? Consomme, well, I, I wouldn't be as, as um, exalted to, to, to be able to do consomme, but I do love uh, a really good uh, sort of chicken soup. And what I find is when I'm making my, my stock from all the bones of the roast chickens you have left over, I always chuck in a few chicken wings or, or, or thighs or whatever's around just to, to boost the flavour. And then once you've simmered it slowly for four, five, six hours, strain it through sort of clean muslin and it takes most of the impurities out and then reduce it down again and you just have a soup you can either use it as a base for your risottos or a chicken soup with fish sauce and lime juice and chilies and noodles and all sorts of healthy lovely tasting things so no real tips but i'm a stock freak i love i'm, I'm with you tom i think it's absolutely essential it's, it's a waste it's always a waste when you cook a joint or cook a cook a chicken not to use the stock Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it's very satisfying using up some slightly some ropey things from the bottom of the fridge as well, a couple of uh, soft carrots. Just shove it all in, it all tastes nice. Bringing them to life. And maybe a final word for that, for that most dangerous of dishes, the, uh, the fugu or the Japanese puffer <laughs> fish. Uh, the, the food, yes, that, that, that is one of those dishes that, as you, as you well know, you need a license as a chef to prepare it because there's, it has a drug called... Te- tetrahydroxin maybe i think it might be um james bond used it in i can't remember one of the books fleming he used the poison of the puffer fish or he, they tried to poison him with it. it it's a nerve agent it's sort of um and and i ate it once in tokyo at a restaurant where you get the license and of course you have to cut it right because it's so poisonous the liver and the entrails that it would kill 
God knows how many people. Um, they serve the fins toasted in sake. Then you get some sashimi. It's quite chewy. Um, and They're good? Great. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I, I certainly don't want to come crashing into anyone else's culture. And I love Japanese food very much. And all it's because it, it wasn't amazing. And you, the real daredevils want to have that slight numbing feeling on your lips. Uh, you know, to show. I suppose the it's, the, the, it's the titillation of actually eating it, isn't it? Rather it, is. Than the it is, and I think a couple of times a year someone dies. It's usually when someone tries to prepare it at home, you know, usually <laughs> on the coast of Japan, catch it, oh, this is nice, um, and, and don't, doesn't prepare properly. But, but legally, you have to have a license as a chef to prepare fugu, um, and it wasn't quite as exciting as I thought it was going to be. But there, I might have had a really, you know, a vanilla, boring experience. I didn't go the, the whole hog and, and, and go the, the hardcore. But, but yes, one, one to write in a book, if you're writing about strange eating experiences, which funnily enough I was. Uh, oh, <laughs> but other, otherwise, I would, you know, go and revel in the rest of the wonders of Japanese cuisine instead. So finish with a warning, don't try this at home. Oh, for, well, luckily we don't really have puffer fish, but if you're listening to this no. in Japan or anywhere with a sea that has poisonous puffer fish if you catch it please don't try and be clever and eat them because it it might kill you there's our disclaimer well thank you ever so much tom that's been terrific thank you so much that was an absolute pleasure that's all we've got time for this week but i'll be back with you and another expert guest in two weeks time don't forget you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other mail plus podcasts at mailplus.co.uk or via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.